Good morning. Pastor Joe is in Oregon as we speak. Uh, he did the wedding for his son. He'll be back next week, but uh, we've been praying for him all week and trusting God to give him less time up there with his family, rejoicing. And uh, privilege of sharing God's with you this morning. Would you pray with me? Our talking about spiritual warfare, being equipped, as Timothy talked about in Scripture, that we might become mature as believers in Jesus Christ, able to serve our God and our Savior in a way that honors him and that defeats Satan's purposes. And as we, as we think about that, um, let me ask you a question. I noticed that you know, as each Sunday, uh, we have a really good mixture of age groups and mixture of maturity levels, I believe, spiritually within our congregation. Some of you have known Christ a long, long, long time. Others are relatively new in your faith. But I want you to think back to when you first became a Christian. When you first asked Jesus to be your Savior, you confessed your sin before him. You confessed your faith in him, and, and you received him as your Savior. And the Holy Spirit uh, began to dwell in your hearts. Uh, whether it was six months ago, whether it was 60 years ago. Back along that time, and if, if you were to graph your spiritual line graph, you know what a line graph is? Remember geometry and algebra? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Uh, I would like to think that mine would start here at, at my new birth and would just go here until Jesus takes me home. Is that how your graph would be? Mine wouldn't be. Mine would be a really good spurt, and then maybe some plateaus, maybe some dips, maybe some ups. And hopefully, if you drew a line across all the peaks and all the valleys, there would be a, a, an upward move because I'm becoming more like Christ. Is your graph something like that? I think so. Um, you know, I was blessed to be uh, raised in a Christian home. I can't remember a time when I didn't believe in Jesus. Uh, my spiritual birthday was July 18th, 1954. That's a long time ago. I was nine years old. I was at a Christian camp. And uh, while I believed in Jesus, I, I, it was then that I really realized that uh, I was a sinner and I needed a Savior. And at that campfire on that Friday night, I went forward and gave my life to Christ. It was 69 years ago. And, and my life has been that up and down a plateau like we talked about. So my question is, why are there dips and plateaus in our Christian walk? <laughs> good, question, good answer. Because we're sinners. God's word says we're sinners by nature. Now what does that mean? And by the way, this is not a monologue. This is a dialogue, if you would like. So, so what does it mean we're sinners by nature? We can't help it. Yeah, and when Adam and Eve sinned, that brought sin into the world. And ever since then, God's word says we were by nature, according to Ephesians, by nature we were sinners and needed a Savior. So a sin nature, uh, well, 1 John in chapter 2 talks about it. He says, uh, do not love the world or the thing in the world, for all that is in the world... If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It's that tug of the world that connects with our, our sin nature. And basically, a sin nature means we have an inclination to do wrong. You ever felt that way? Does that resonate? Is that a, a true statement in your experience? Uh, it is in all of us. That's how we are. But there's also another aspect to uh, sin, us being a sinners, and that's Satan's. Uh, this is the aspect of our Christian life that we're talking about in this series, and we're going to be looking at more specifically today as we talk about the shield of faith. So let's review for a minute where we've been. Uh, the setting for what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6 that we're going to read in a few minutes, uh, he was under house arrest in Rome a two-year house arrest. Uh, 
He was chained between two soldiers. He could receive visitors, but he was stuck there. And as he was looking at these soldiers day after day and conversing with them, and actually converting a lot of them, we find in some of the epistles, he says, there's a whole number of the Praetorian guard that have come to Christ because these soldiers rotated. And he had people to preach to uh, every few hours. But the soldier's armor reminds him of the spiritual battle that we're involved in. So what is the conflict? Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5. And I have to apologize ahead of time a little bit. I have some things on an outline for you. But if you're like me, I can't read that. Can you? If you have 20-20 vision, you might be able to. My software on my computer didn't jive with our software for presentation here. And so uh, please don't get distracted by small fonts, okay? <laughs> but if we go to 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, starting at verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him. Be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing the same sufferings experienced by your brothers who are in the world. It's a spiritual battle. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 6 and look at our weapons and our, what we have to protect us in that spiritual battle. Ephesians 6, starting with uh, verse 13, or actually, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, rulers of darkness, and say, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your, your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with prayer and supplication in the Spirit. The conflict. Who's our enemy? You all know the answer. Satan, right. What's another name for him? Starts with a D. The devil, right. Those words, he's the accuser. He's Landerer. He's the one who comes against God and God's people. Let's take a few minutes, and I'd like you to think about the enemy. I hesitate to do that on one hand because I don't want to give Satan any more attention than he deserves. But at the same time, if we're to defeat our enemy in the power of Christ, we have to know our enemy, be acquainted with him, know his strategies, his powers, what he wants to do. Here's something that's really important. Uh, a lot of believers believe that, that Satan is God's counterpart. Is that true? We have God on one side and Satan on the other, and they're always at each other. That's true. But is Satan God's equal only on the side? No. No. We need to understand it and be convinced of that. Because he would have us believe that. Satan is the deceiver. He casts doubt and deception disruption. He brings all those things and he tries to let you know that he's as powerful as God. I'm going to throw some theological terms at you. The first one you know. What does eternal mean? No beginning, no end. Right? Who is eternal? God and God alone. Here's another one. Omniscient. Ooh, that's a bigger word. What does omniscient mean? We have our word science. The middle of that one. All knowing. God knows the beginning. He knows, he knows the end from the beginning. He is all knowing. There's nothing that he does not know. How about omnipresent? <clears throat> Everywhere. Kind of like Santa Claus. <clears throat> he is 
everywhere at once. How about omnipotent? He's all-powerful. There's nothing that can withstand the power of God. When we talk about eternal, let's stay there for just a second. Uh, I love that concept. I, I think no beginning and no end. But the, um, the eternal and the omnipresent. What, what did uh, God tell Moses his name was at the burning bush? Moses says, who should I say sent me? What did he say? I am. Have you ever thought about that name of God, I am? He is always in the present tense. At the Garden of Eden, at the creation of the world, he's there. I am. At the second coming of Christ, at the battle of Armageddon, at eternity future, he's there all the time. He exists within eternity, is what God's word says. Now, if you can understand that, I'd like you to explain it to me. That's one of those things like, I, I really don't get, I can't wrap my finite mind around a God of eternity. But it's true. And if that's true, there's nothing beyond God's scope, his vision, his knowledge. There's no place we can be where God is. You can go behind into your room and shut your door and, and you're there by yourself. Who's inside of you if you're a believer? God, the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to be anywhere where the Holy Spirit's not. God is with us all the time. So God, uh, Satan has none of those qualities. He was created by God. Uh, when you think about Satan, you think about the devil, and I hope you think about the Halloween Satan. You know, the, the red suit, the horns, the tail, and all of that. Um, what is Satan essentially? An angel. Now, do you think of Satan as an angel? Uh, hopefully, a fallen angel is what you think of. He was created by the He was an archangel. Do you know what that means? He was one of the head leaders. He was called the anointed cherub. Now, in your mind, what do you think a cherub is? What does it look like? It's not this little chubby baby, <laughs> right? That with little wings. No. A cherub, if you look in the book of Revelation, the cherubs were around the, the throne of God, in the throne room of heaven, and their duty was to protect the glory of the Lord. You read in the book of Revelation, it's beautiful of the angels. He was one of those cherubs, possibly the leader of the cherubs. We don't know for sure. He's called, well, let me read you a couple, of versions, a couple of descriptions of him. One is in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28. Now, when you're thinking about prophecy, oftentimes prophecy has a couple of applications. It can be a direct statement or description of something in the immediate and then it can also have an application uh, of something in the future. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 28, my eyes are not working really well today, I'm sorry. Uh, chapter uh, 28, starting in verse 12, he is putting out a, a, a prophet against the king of Tyre, T-I-R-E. But as you read it, you also realize he's talking about somebody else. Um, thus, Lord perfection, wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. The king of Tyre was not in Eden. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz and diamond, beryl, ox, onyx and jasper, sapphire and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in all your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. The abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. 
and his prophecy I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Here is Satan, prior to his fall from heaven. He was a, a beautiful, leading cherub. Now if we go to Isaiah chapter 14. This time Isaiah is prophesying against the king of Babylon. But he also is talking about Satan. And we're going to find, you know, what was Satan's sin? It starts with a P. Pride. It, that's part of our big sin, part of our sin nature. Pride. But in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 14, starting in verse 12. Oh, how you've fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, uh, literally morning star. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. And here was Satan's sin. For you have said in your heart, I will stand into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to the depth of Sheol, to its lower depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you Consider you saying, is the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world the will who did not open the And he goes on describing in the king of fire. But Satan, five things he said there. I will, I will, I will. We have a very powerful adversary. Notice, even though Satan was cast down, we find that in Revelation 12, says he took with him a third of the angels of heaven in rebellion against God. Even though he was cast down, he still has access to heaven. Did you know that? He can go, come and go. Now, he's limited by time and space. He's not eternal. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. But he can come and go. Uh, can you think of a time when Satan, <clears throat> after he fell, when he was talking to God and he was talking to God about one of his got one of God's servants, Job in the Old Testament. Yeah, the book of Job. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Job chapter one. Starting in verse six. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them also. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord. From going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, You're walking around. Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him? around his household, around all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. So he's basically saying the only re reason Job fears you is because you blessed him so much. Take away his stuff. Take away his family and see if he still worships you. This is Satan talking to the Lord God in heaven about Job. That's not the only time it happens. Uh, Revelation 12.9 describes Satan as Accusers. He stands before the throne day and night accusing you and me. Do you know we have a defense attorney? Who is that? Jesus Christ the righteous. Where is he? He's at the right hand of God. And we have an advocate as an attorney with Jesus. So when Satan goes against you, Jesus says, wait a minute, I died for that sin. Given. He's clean. She's clean. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know? God. First John says, if we confess our sin, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Satan is attacking us to the Father. Jesus is standing up saying, not so fast, Satan. He's my child. She's my child. I died for them. Peter, when he was just about to, to, to go 
and watch Jesus be arrested. Jesus in Luke chapter 22, he said, Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. But when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What was he talking about? Garden of Gethsemane, then the trial. And what did Peter do when he was standing in the courtyard? He denied Jesus three times. You remember that? That was Satan sifting him like wheat. Satan is active. But Satan had to ask permission from God to do that, just like he did with Job. Satan is asking permission for you and me, for us to be tempted, to be sifted, to be tested, to see if we really are who we say we are in relationship to God. A very powerful adversary. So we, as we read now in Ephesians, we've read that it's a spiritual conflict, not a physical conflict. We're not warring against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. What are principalities and powers? It, apparently, the angels are organized in various levels of authority and responsibility. And just like the good angels are that way, so are the evil angels who are called what? Demons. Third of all the angels in heaven. <clears throat> how many is that? I can't count that high. <laughs> I don't know how many angels there were. But a third of them are now demons. They're spirit beings to attack you, to attack me on behalf of Satan, our enemy. It's a spiritual conflict. Who is our resource? Ephesians says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. So how powerful is, is the Lord? We said God is all powerful, right? Is, is Jesus our Savior able to do anything? Everything, right? He is all powerful. He says be strong in whose might? The Lord's might. I don't have strength to be able to combat Satan or his demons. Not in myself. But I have Christ through the Holy Spirit in my heart, living through me, living through you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And he has all the power, so we trust in him. Be strong in the Lord. Our resources, the Lord and his power, as we find in Ephesians 6, is the armor of God. The goal is that we would stand, having done all, to stand victoriously. Victory. Our armor, and we read that in, in Ephesians 6, 13 through 17. It's interesting. Uh, Pastor Joe has gone through the, uh, the belt of truth. What was the belt of truth? Do you remember? Overcoming the lies of the enemy. God's truth, as well as our, our lives being uh, characterized by truthfulness. The breastplate of righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus and right living as believers. And the shoes of peace. Remember we talked last week about that, about the cleats and the shoes, so you have traction, you can stand firm. The peace of God and being instruments of peace. He says, for those three things, put them on. That's how he describes it. Shod your feet or put your shoes on. That's interesting because the next three pieces, the uh, shield of faith, the help of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, he doesn't say put them on, he says take them up. Kind of a slight difference there. The idea is when the soldiers are in the battlefield, but not in conflict at the moment, they're in camp. They always are wearing those first three things. right? The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and, and uh, the shoes to be ready. But when it comes time for conflict, wearing those things, not the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the of the Spirit, so you're ready for the battle. So we're going to be talking just for a few minutes now about Lord, or excuse me, the shield of faith. When you think of a Roman shield, what do you think of? What, what does it look like? Typically, I would have thought about a round shield, about two feet in diameter. It has leather straps in it, usually held in their left hand. So in hand-to-hand -hand combat, they're ready with their short sword, a mycaris, and they're able to go in and, and battle hand-to-hand. But the word here for, that, for uh, 
the shield is a different shield. When they're getting ready to go into battle, the famous strategy of the Roman army was to line up, sometimes a mile long, this front of soldiers. And they're holding a shield, and the name of that shield is, is basically derived from the Greek word for door. And it's door-shaped. So you see your picture here. It was about four and a half feet high, two and a half feet wide. Uh, men in those days were shorter than they are today. Uh, the average a man five foot six, five foot seven. And so a Roman soldier typically could duck down behind that shield with only maybe his ankles and shins exposed. And then to withstand things coming at him. But there was something else they did. Um, like turtles and tortoises. We used to have a couple of tortoises named Speedy and Spot. <laughs> Speedy because she was always going places and Spot because he stayed in one spot. <laughs> but uh, and we missed those tortoises. Uh, tortoise shell covering. Look at this picture. The, the Second, third, fourth, fifth rows of soldiers along that front would take their shield and put them over their heads. So it was called tortoise formation. And so the enemy, when the enemy is back there taking their arrows and dipping them in pit and lighting fire and shooting them, the arrows would come toward the soldiers and would either bounce off or stick in and be extinguished. These shields were, were made of, of plywood several plies of wood so they could bend it into a concave shape and they were covered with leather that was dipped in water or oil so that if the arrow would stick in the shield it would bounce off the shield. That's the picture Paul had in his mind when he talks to us about the shield of faith. So let's think about that for a minute. There are two ways in the way the, the Christian faith is described in the Bible. One, we talk about the faith. What do you think we're talking about there? The faith. As a church, we have a written statement of faith. We believe in and has all the things we've taken from God's word that we stand for, that we believe in. That is our statement of faith. That is the faith. Uh, Paul talks about it quite often that way. All right. But what we're talking about here, it's your faith or our faith. What's the difference between the faith and my faith? We're believing the same thing, right? I'm believing the faith, but my faith is talking about a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that's the faith he's talking about here. It's our relationship with God, this trusting relationship in him that is able then to extend the fiery darts of the enemy. John Payton uh, was a Scottish missionary to the uh, Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific in the mid-1850s. And he was translating the, lang the uh, language of this uh, Bible into the language of this tribe. The tribe was actually a notorious of, of cannibals. He was risking his whole life. Matter of fact, his missionary partner was murdered by one of these uh, cannibals. And as he was translating, he couldn't find a word for believe. He was trying to translate John 3.16. And there was not a word that, that corresponded. And his language came in from the fields, exhausted, collapsed beside him, and uttered a phrase he hadn't heard before. He said, what does that mean? He says, it means I cast my whole weight upon this chair or his log. He said, that's it. And so he translated John 3.16 in her language, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, whoever casts his whole weight upon him, should not perish but have everlasting life. So to the faith we're talking about, where we come to a point where we know that we're sinners, we know that we don't deserve to go to heaven, who Jesus is God in flesh and that he lived a perfect life and he died taking our sins upon him on that cross and after he died three days later he rose from the dead giving us the hope of eternal life and resurrection if we are at that place and we give our lives to him he receives us and gives us the Holy Spirit gives us eternal life 
and we have a relationship with him. And it's in that relationship with him in the power of the Holy Spirit by trusting him, casting all of our weight on him, that we have the ability to withstand or extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. It's not just intellectual assent. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. James says that the demons believe in Jesus. But look what's got them. They tremble. No, it's not intellectual assent. It's, it's trusting him. <clears throat> Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. And it's not I who live, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live in faith, trusting him who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the faith we're talking about. Uh, Hebrews 11 Chapter, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 3 and verse 6 describe that faith. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, <clears throat> the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders have good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, but that the things which are seen were not made things which are and you go to verse 6. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And then throughout that 11th chapter, he gives us stories of Old Testament characters and their life of trusting God and how God honored that. Uh, let's think about uh, a couple of them. He talked about Noah. Why would Noah have to have faith? What did God tell him? What was the context? What was the setting? What was the society like where Noah lived? Like the U.S., right? Is that not right? Like the society we're living in where right is wrong and wrong is right? And how dare you stand up for what's right? You're a bitch or you're whatever. Homosexuality was rampant. Um, it was just all over. And so God said, I'm sorry for creating And he came to Noah and he found Noah as being a righteous man. And so what did he say to Noah? There's going to be a flood. And I'm going to destroy the whole earth with this flood and everything in it. And I want you to build an ark. And he gave him the dimensions and the building materials, a whole list for the And Noah's, did you ever hear the, the Bill Cosby uh, story about uh, album with Noah? Uh, Cosby says, who is this really <laughs> when God's talking to him? And he's hesitating, and finally God asks him a question. He says, Noah, yes, God, how long can you tread water? <laughs> Think it from Noah's perspective, first of all, we don't believe that it's ever rained on the earth at that time. There was a protective canopy around the earth, and it was kind of like a greenhouse. God, when describing the storm that came and brought the flood, said that the, it was all torn open, and the waters of the deep came up, waters from above came down, and totally flooded the earth. So it was a foreign concept to Noah. And then he just tells him how to build this huge ark. Where am I going to need to have an ark that big? Can you imagine the faith that it took in Noah's mind? It said Noah believed God, and he did this, and he saved his whole family. I don't know if I would have that faith. Think about Abraham. A couple of things about Abraham, Hebrews 11 says. It says that, first of all, he went out from where he was. He lived in Ur of Chaldees, that Babylon area, uh, Iran, Iraq, that area now. He was a rich, rich man, very blessed by God. His dad and his whole family were all there. God spoke to him, so I want you to leave here and go to a place that I'm going to show you. He didn't give him a map. He didn't have, uh, you know, map quest or anything like that. He just said, I'll show you when you get there. Can you imagine the conversation between Abraham and Sarah? Oh, why would we leave all of this? Well, God told me to. Where are we going? I don't know. God said, let me get there. Can you imagine that conversation, guys? Wouldn't go too well. God trust, uh, Abraham trusted God, and he took his whole family. And it's interesting that God used um, Abraham's dad actually 
to get them going. He said, come on, we're moving. God spoke to Abraham first about it, but he also spoke to Abraham's father. And they went as far as Haran, which is the northern area above Israel. And they stopped there. And they stayed there until Abraham's dad passed away. And then Abraham said, or God said, come on, I'm going to show you the rest of the way. And they come down to the promised land. What faith that must have taken. And then he made promises to Abraham and Sarah. What was the big promise he made to Abraham and Sarah? You're going to have a son, Isaac. And it's not just you're going to have a son. Through your son, what am I going to do? Bless the whole world, generations to come. He's going to, his lines are, is going to come to Messiah. The promised one. Big promise. Did he do it right away? <laughs> no. Waited and waited and waited. Abraham was 100. Sarah was, what, 90? She was past the childbearing years for sure. They trusted God, waiting for the child. Isaac was born. Now Isaac is, is a teenager or early 20s. And God said, Abraham, uh, I want you to go to a mountain, Mount Moriah, where I'm going to show you, and I want you to sacrifice for me. Worship me. Okay. I want you to take your son, your only son, your only beloved son, kind of like John 3.16. Take your beloved son and you to sacrifice him to me on that mountain. That makes sense. Look at God's promises and look at what he's telling Abraham to do. But Abraham trusted God. Isaac actually carried the wood and Abraham carried the fire, the, the torch. And they went with servants to Mount Moriah. At the base of the mountain, uh, Abraham says to the servants, you wait here. The, the lad and I going up the mountain and we're going to sacrifice and, off and worship the Lord and we will return to you. Faith. They get up there and what does Isaac say? We've got the We're missing sacrifice. Abraham had Isaac laid down. He bound him on the wood and was ready to stab him. When it says the angel of the Lord, I believe that was the Lord Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance said, stop, don't do it. I know your faith. He saw a lamb or a ram stuck in, in the thicket there. He says, use that sacrifice instead. Abraham trusted God. That's a shield of faith. Simply put, the shield of faith is trusting God's God and trusting God's promises. So think with me for a minute. What are some of the promises that God has given us? Just shout them out. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Same thing David said, yeah. What else? Guidance. What does Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say? Trust, faith. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. What? Yeah, all your ways acknowledge him, and I will direct your paths. I'll give you guidance if you trust me. Same thing he said to Abraham, basically. What are some other promises? How about forgiveness? Confess your sins to me, I'll cleanse you from all, I'll forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. How about answered prayer? Call unto me, I will, you. I will answer you. I'll show you things that you could not know. How about wisdom? You ever need wisdom? I do. Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is how do I use knowledge? What do I do here, Lord? And James, if any of you ask wisdom, let him ask the Lord. And he'll give it to you. How about forgiveness? Yeah. So far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our sin from us. Rest. I love that one. Yeah. How about eternal life? All these promises, there are hundreds of promises from God. So let's talk for a second about Satan's weapons, those fiery darts. His flaming arrow. I really believe that the very root of Satan's arrows uh, is doubt. I think the opposite of, of promises is doubt. Think back all the way back to when Satan appeared. Uh, he said, what's going on here? 
Well, God said we can't, we can't eat of this fruit. We can't eat everything else. We can't even eat fruit or touch it. And Satan basically says to her, did, really God, did God really say that? He just doesn't want you to eat it because if you eat it, you're going to be as smart and knowledgeable like him, knowing good and evil. You'd be like God if you eat this. And he plants the seed of doubt in her mind regarding what God had told her to do. And she sinned. How about uh, Jesus when he's beginning his, his ministry? After he was baptized, what happened? Does the devil or Satan in the wilderness? Right? The Holy Spirit drove him to the Satan was there. And he tempted him for 40 days and 40 nights. Was the basic thing he had every temptation. He said, "If you are the Son of God, do this." He's had for forty days and forty nights. He was weak. He was hungry, at his weakest. And then used time to cast doubt in Jesus' mind. And how did Jesus respond? He always responded by quoting Scripture. He used the Word of God. He says, "Man shall not live by bread alone." When Satan said these stones into bread. How about the end of Jesus' ministry? He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was about to go through the terrible suffering and crucifixion. And his disciples were sleeping. He couldn't even count on his, his friends to watch for him and pray for him. And he was there. What, did, what were Jesus' words? If it is possible, what? What did he say? Let this cup pass from me or take this cup away from me. What cup are we talking about? The cup of his suffering, right? Now, we're not, Jesus did not succumb to those things, but that was a temptation from Satan because Jesus knew what was coming and he didn't want to suffer. Would you? He was human and he was God. And what was Jesus' response three times? And finally, what did he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And where Paul set before he endured the cross. That's not happiness, that's joy, a deep-seated joy and peace because he knew what it was going to accomplish for us. Satan wants those promises. He wants us to distrust God. Every temptation has its root in that. He's constantly trying to drive a wedge between you and me and God. And he uses every opportunity to try to lure us away from him. He brings doubt, deception, distraction, distortion. God says that doubt shortcuts our prayers. In James, he says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. But let him ask in faith, doubting nothing. For the one who doubts is like uh, something on the ocean in the woods and the waves are just driving you all over the place. Don't let that man, being a double-minded man, expect to be answered. So what are some of the things that that wake you up at 3 a.m.? I've shared my testimony a while, several times, but, you know, when when I was 35 years old, uh, after some stuff going on in my life and went to the doctor and I checked some things and finally found out that, that I had colon cancer and it was my liver and according to the oncologist I had 25% chance to survive five years. I didn't even know what an oncologist was. And he says, any questions? <laughs> I don't remember the drive home day. So I had the, the cancer surgery and, and I was lying there. My son was a sixth grader, my daughter was a fourth grader. They were getting ready to, to move on and I kept thinking, I had so many hopes and dreams. All I could think of was 75% chance I'm going to die in five years. Think about the 25%. And I, that was probably the lowest I've ever been in my life. It was Satan helping me to doubt God and his care and his promises and, and to just cast fear into my life. That was a fiery dart from Satan. And I, uh, Lloyd Rinks, a, a pastor friend of mine, came in one night when I was just well, I didn't even want to see anybody. I just wanted to curl up, you know. And he started reading scripture, and he read uh, Psalm 31, 
and 15 to me. <clears throat> the passage David is talking about, everybody thinks I'm a man. Um, he was running away from Absalom or Saul, we're not sure which, but he was at his lowest. Then he says in verse 14, But as for me, I say, I trust in you. You are my God. My times are in your hands. And that last part stuck with me. My times are in your hands. And all of a sudden, that doubt and that fear and that anger and all of those things were just taken away and, and what took their place was peace. Because I knew who I was. I knew how I trusted God. He was my Savior. Um, and I knew that, that he already had my end already planned from the beginning. And no doctor was going to add to or subtract away from any of the God already planned for me. And he replaced all of those fiery darts with peace. And something really cool, uh, the backstory to that, I had been praying the prayer of Jabez. Have you read the book, my book, The Prayer of Jabez? I encourage you to read it. Easy read. But God to expand his territory. That's what Jabez was praying in the Old Testament. I was praying to expand my ministry. Didn't put, unfortunately, didn't put any limits on it. Later on, I realized that having cancer and all of that experience that I went through was that prayer. God expanded my ministry in ways I could never see as far as ministering to others who are going through similar things. To be able to say, I know what you're going through. Let me tell you, you know, and share what God had done in my heart. And it's been exciting to see what happens. God keeps bringing people across my path. Extinguishing the darts, the fiery darts. So how do you do that? a real practical few things I don't know about you but Satan likes to attack me at night when I'm trying to sleep does he ever do that to you am I alone you know what I've started doing that really helps me I always have to plug my phone in to charge it right so it's right on my nightstand beside the bed and I put on Pandora and I go to music and I play uh, there's a Christian instrumental Christian hymns Softly, it doesn't give me a break. I have God's word through Christian hymns going through my head all night long. And it gives me peace and helps me sleep until the dogs wake me up in the morning. <laughs> Christian music. What kind of music do you listen to today? I'm not criticizing or endorsing any kind of music, but well, I'll tell you, if you're not listening to Christian music, your heart's not being fed God's word. How about God's word itself? How do you start your day? How do you end your day? Well, I have to get up and go to work. I don't have to get up and go to work, but I still have to get up. <laughs> and it's, I found over the years that if I start my day, if I give my start of my day, and just give him permission to do whatever he wants and ask him to, for divine appointments, just talk with him for a little while. Spend some time in his word. That gets my day going well, and I'm more likely to hear him and recognize Satan's fiery darts. Prayer. At the end of the day, don't go to sleep. Review the day with the Lord. How did we do today, God? How did I do? Oh, yeah, look back at the good things. I look back at work messed up. It helps me to sleep better, but it also keeps my mind and my heart place where it's an active shield against Satan. Another one that we oftentimes forget about is fellowship. I hope that what we're doing right now is a high priority in your life. I hope that you have Christian brothers and sisters that you can count on, that know you well, that who, who have the privilege of being able to speak into your life, to confront you when you need to be confronted, or if you need talk about something is too hard to talk to anybody else, you can talk to them and they'll pray with you. We need, you know, if those soldiers with shields are just one and they're separated by 10 or 15 feet, they're not going to be as effective as when they're lined up. We need the body of Christ. We are God's army. And we need each other as soldiers. We need to have somebody 
who has our back. And if you don't have someone like that, pray for them. God will bring them to you. And for me and for you, are there chinks? Are there areas where Satan's getting at you? Weak spots, places where there's uh, no covering. Ultimately, God is our shield. Uh, Psalm 33, uh, verse, uh, 3, verse 3 says, Thou art, O God, are a shield about me. You're my glory. You're the one who lifts my head. You are my shield. And let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. Therefore, humble yourselves, mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, Having cast all of your anxiety upon him, for he cares about you, be on sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your brothers and sisters who are in the world. It's not just you. And after you've suffered, here's the part that I don't quite agree with. After you've suffered for a little while, how many of you feel like suffering just for a little while? When you're going through it, it seems like an eternity, doesn't it? From God's perspective, he limits it. Matter of fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I think it is, he says, there's no temptation or trial that has taken you, but common to man. But God is faithful. He, he will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond able, but with the temptation or trial, will provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, memorize that one. After you suffered for a little while, God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus will himself, God himself, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's a promise from God. Satan cannot do a thing about that promise. You're a child of God. He himself wants to strengthen you, wants to build that relationship with you. Humble yourself, therefore, into the mighty hand of God. Sing a song uh, that I love. It's called, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. He's been bombarded by those fire darts or feeling unable to stand up against it. Maybe you don't have that shield of faith yet, and you don't know the Lord. I don't know where you're at spiritually. God does. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart and, and saying, listen, you need to do something about it, uh, you feel like uh, coming up and talking to me, to Dan, uh, we'll be glad to talk with you and pray with you. Uh, if you just need to pray singing, do that. But God is talking to us today. Hold that shield of faith in place. Stand shoulder to shoulder. Put those shields over your head so Satan has no access to you. Let's stand and sing.